Our passage this morning is taken from Romans chapter 16. This is it. This is the end of the letter. It's taken us almost a year, but we've come to the final passages in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And this morning we'll look at the concluding sections, verses 17 through 27. Young Christians, young theologians, I don't really have anything for you to listen for this morning, but I want you to understand what Paul was doing when he wrote letters to churches. So this week I want you to try something new. Write a letter telling somebody about Jesus. What would you say about Jesus in a letter to a friend or a family member? Write it out and then send it. Put it in the mail and pray about it and see what happens. See how Jesus might use your letter in the life of someone who receives it. This is the good news of Jesus the Savior who loves and keeps the church. Although sometimes our life in the church is difficult. Still, he is guarding and keeping us. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason, Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter for Paul, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. And now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ Amen. And Lord Jesus, we ask you to watch over us this morning and to stir our hearts with these words. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would call us away from our wrong loves and draw us back into the strong and unfailing arms of our Savior who has given himself as the purest sacrifice for people who are impure who has given himself the obedient one for people who are well practiced at disobedience, who has given himself as the forgiveness for those who desperately need it. And now, Lord Jesus, you are our celebration and our life that we often forget. And so we ask this morning that you redirect our hearts and draw us back to see that the one who is able to strengthen us according to his gospel is the one whom we are to praise and we are to rest upon him in and for all things. And with this, we are safe and we are kept. Teach us and 
we will give you thanks. Drive these things deep into our hearts and we will give you thanks. Shape our lives by all of this and our thanks will be yours. We ask it all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? So, this is goodbye. Paul is signing off. And of everything else that Paul has written in his letter, filled as it is with love and care, with theology and mystery, with heavy doctrine and the winged gospel, filled with our deepest needs and Christ's most gracious gifts to meet those needs, with all of that filling The rest of the letter, this right here is Paul at his best. This is not the passage that we memorize as Paul's most poetic and quotable, but in this passage, Paul is his most human and his most brotherly and his most apostolic and pastoral. If anyone knows what goodbye means, it's Paul. The word itself, goodbye, is a contraction of the phrase, God be with you. Somewhere along the line, we got lazy and we slurred it all together into one word. And it's much easier to say now, but it's certainly not more meaningful. And we use the word to mean, I'm leaving. I won't be seeing you anymore, at least for a while. This is the end. This is it. But it used to mean... Whatever happens with you next, it comes from God's grace. This this sentiment, this phrase, God be with you, it was meant to be an echo of the covenant. If God has claimed you, he won't abandon you. And it comes from the incarnate grace of Jesus who said to his disciples after his resurrection and just before his ascension into heaven, Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So it's beautiful that Paul signs off with it. He doesn't use the word or the phrase, God be with you, but the sense of it is here. Because Paul knows that he can't stay with this church, and he can't oversee it, and he can't protect it. But he also knows that Jesus will never leave this church. So, for his parting words, his parting instruction, Paul begins with a warning. Warnings can often seem dark and foreboding to us, but warnings can be loving too, like a sign posted to keep you out of trouble. I was on a beach in Australia one summer, and the water was this indescribable blue, like some ancient oceanic secret. And being on a beach like that, in a place like that, we had to dive into the surf. So we kicked off our shoes and tore off our jackets and shirts and went running down the beach. And we were stopped at the water's edge by a sign posted there that said, Danger, keep out. And the rest of the sign explained that the shallows, the shallows, water that was only knee deep, Those waters were the hunting grounds of great whites. What would you do? Would you get in? On a cliff on the coast of France, 
I looked down on another beach and thought I might climb down to it, but there were signs posted there that warned climbing down the hillside to the water's edge was not a good idea because living in the sea scrub, in the dunes, in the thickets, in the underbrush were wild boar and you don't want to meet them, the sign said. Standing on those beaches, I didn't see any sharks and I didn't see any wild boar, but that doesn't mean they weren't there. And usually it happens that you don't see them until you aren't watching for them and it's too late. So Paul says, watch, post sentries, keep vigilant, be ready and wary and wise. Because as the church, you face a particular danger, people who cause divisions. I don't know why it is. But the church being what it is, the body of Christ, meant to share in unity the way the Father, the Son, and the Spirit share in inseparable unity together. There is always someone who wants to start a division. And Paul explains to us where the divisions come from in verse 20. You might have thought that this was just an off-handed, detached statement about Satan. But for Paul, he's implying something here. The mention of Satan in verse 20 says to us that Satan is the hateful divider. And if we can reverse what Paul is saying in this particular verse, which I don't think goes beyond the intent of what Paul has written, I think this is well within the bounds of what Paul gives us here. Satan, which means the accuser, it's not so much a name, it's a title. The accuser wants to put the gospel under his feet and grind it into the dust so that there's nothing left of it. The accuser wants to put the church under his feet and crush the life out of it. And that's why he must be put under your feet. And Satan is put under your feet as you hold together professing faith in Jesus. As you say, all together, we know one thing. We have one thing, the atoning, recreating death of Jesus Christ, Savior, Redeemer, Groom, King. But be warned, Paul says, Satan is going to try to undermine all that. And he's going to try to distract you and dissuade you and divide you. And he'll be subtle about it using all of the ways listed in verse 18. And these are all ways that we have all practiced. We have all been, or are, or will be dividers. Paul knows about division, by the way. He's seen it firsthand. He knows what it can do to the church. You may not realize this, but Paul is writing to the church in Rome from the church in Corinth. And from the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, we have a picture of the congregational life in that particular church. That church had trouble. That church was carved up and divided into power interests and parties and factions. There are these political skirmishes for credibility and authority. And some in that church are saying, we follow Paul. And there was another group in that church saying, we follow Peter. And a third group was saying, Apollos is our spiritual leader. We listen to him. 
And in the third chapter of his letter to the church in Corinth, Paul corrects them and he writes, Peter and Apollos and I, we're not divided. We follow Christ together. We are agreed together on our need for Jesus and the work that he's done within us. So writing from Corinth, Paul knows division. And he's saying, even division that cloaks itself in spiritual sounding talk is a poison. If you've been following the World Cup, you've seen it played out on your television screen. France's national team, the Blues, they're called, because of their blue uniforms, Les Bleus is how the French say it, but it helps to have a couple of glasses of wine in you. I think that's why the French use wine so much. It helps them speak their language. (laughs) The French national team imploded on television. It all started when one of the star players unleashed a tirade of curses on the coach. And he was thrown off the team. Some of the senior players, many of them long past their best years of play, but not short on ego, convinced the rest of the team to revolt. And some of the younger players tried to resist. They insisted this wasn't a good idea, but they were bullied into it. So the team skipped practices at the World Cup. This is the highest level of play in the sport. This isn't a scrimmage. They skipped practices and stayed in their hotel suites and watched television and ordered room service. It got so bad that Nicolas Sarkozy, the president of France, sent his minister of sports down to South Africa to scold the team, but it didn't do any good. They lost every game they played. And after their final humiliating loss, this team made up of some of the best players in the world was whisked away by an infuriated French football federation. They were put on buses outside of the stadium and driven directly to the airport where they boarded a chartered plane sitting on the tarmac. But the flight home wasn't in the luxury of first class, the way they'd come into the country. They got to fly home and coach. And this last Wednesday, the Minister of Sports stood before the French Parliament and she gave this report. We lost because our team is made up of immature gangsters bossing around frightened kids with a powerless coach in disarray and a federation in shambles. And Paul is saying, watch out because sometimes the church is like that. Watch out because sometimes the church is run by gangsters. Sometimes we make ourselves gangsters. But it's always a poison to the church. And it's always a poison to our hearts. Because it is the denial of the gospel. This is not what Jesus has come to do. And this is not what he has done with us. And Paul is saying, the natural enemy of the gospel in the church is division. 
You can have a church all carved and divided up, but you can't enjoy the fullness of the gospel when you're fractured. There is good news for us in this passage. It's a little hard to see because it seems like Paul goes schizophrenic on us. Without almost any warning at all, Paul makes this dramatic, drastic shift and he breaks into doxology in the very last section of the letter. Now, doxology means to give glory. Glory is this high opinion of another. It is ascribing to one, recognizing in this one, a reputation of greatness and moral beauty and incomparable worth. If you want to see doxology, the last verse of our first hymn is a beautiful example of it. But here's how doxology works. Doxology is a spontaneous breaking into song. It's spontaneously singing a hymn. A doxology is a rapturous building refrain where the speaker, the writer, the singer gets carried away in giving glory to God. And this little paragraph fits all the criteria for a doxology. Paul breaks into a worship song. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And it builds with excitement and anticipation. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but now has been disclosed through the prophets and carried to all nations through evangelism and missions and churches planted according to the gracious command of the eternal God who gives us faith, who makes us obedient by filling us with faith. And then at the very end, the crescendo is reached and breaks with the word doxa or glory in verse 27. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. It's not nearly as schizophrenic as we might think. It makes sense that Paul ends his letter this way. Because the gospel is always working to turn our weepings and laments for sin into spontaneous hymn sings. The gospel is always working to turn our disgrace into God's doxology. The fullness and strength of the gospel always ends in doxology. A God who chooses to love a people who are not choosing Him, who are choosing countless other gods, that has to end with doxology. A Savior sent to chase a people who are running away from Him has to end with doxology. A Savior who willingly replaces a guilty verdict with good news that He has brought and accomplished in Himself deserves doxology. A Savior who loves sinners out of judgment with the pains of His own cross. Who loves sinners to the bottom of death with three breathless days in a stone vault. Who loves sinners into new life like a dream, like emerging from darkness into blinding light, like walking out of a tomb into daybreak. That has to finish with doxology. And if any of that touches you, you can't hold that in. The gospel welcomes us and receives us into the very thing that we threw away. 
joining God in enjoying His glory. The gospel is the reversal for us of the tragedy of the garden where we put our sham glory ahead of God's priceless glory. And it all comes out in doxology. But why force these two sections together? Do they fit at all? A section on warning and then a section of doxology to close the letter out completely. That doesn't seem like it goes together. If if you read it straight through, the sense of it is, watch out for divisions, they'll kill you. But isn't Jesus great? Now, there is nothing forced in this. They fit together perfectly, these two sections. If division is the natural enemy of the gospel in the church, then Paul is saying the gospel weapon against division is doxology. Doxology diffuses all the nasty little bombs and traps in verse 18. If you're swept up with the glory of God and you're singing His praises, how can you not serve our Lord Christ, as Paul calls Him in verse 18? If you're overwhelmed with God's glory, if you're doing doxology, your own appetites will turn distasteful and you'll want more of His appetites. If you are doing doxology, smooth talk and flattery are a waste of breath because you know there are stronger, truer things to be said. If you're caught up with the glory of God, the way He has loved us from His own richness and resources beyond anything that we could ever deserve on our own, if you're doing doxology, what could ever deceive your heart? Sometimes I have to take my daughter aside when she is particularly selfish and small-hearted and tight-fisted and territorial. And I say to her, listen, the way you're behaving would make sense if you lived in an orphanage. And there was nobody to love you and care for you. And you had to take what you needed for yourself. You had to provide for yourself. If you lived in an orphanage, the way you're acting would make sense. But you don't live in an orphanage. You live in a family. And we'll give you anything we have. And if there's something you need that we don't have, we'll fight to get it for you. You need to remember, I say to her, you are loved. I have to remind her because she forgets. And doxology is our deep reminder. You are loved. What Paul is saying to us in the close of the letter comes down to this. When we are divided, it is because we are not doing doxology. It's as simple as that. When we are divided, we are not doing doxology. And when we are doing doxology, and I don't mean windy spiritual platitudes that mean nothing because they say nothing. I don't mean these high-voiced, pietistic gasps and wheezes that end with question marks and not exclamation points. I don't mean these these words that just sort of flutter out and never land. What we mean by this is heavy words. 
uh, hearty, stout words, words that are, are so full, it's hard to take them in all at once. It's harder still to say them. They feel like throwing rocks and heavy timbers. They're dangerous words. They're words that leave a mark, you understand. These are the kinds of words that whole worlds rest on. These are the words that the kingdom of salvation stands on. These are the words that he's building your lives out of. Those kinds of words. Heavy, lumbering, thunderous words, even when they're quiet. The words that speak of the heart of God in love for sinners. Revealed in the mission of Christ. By the power of the Spirit for the reconciliation of the church and the undying hope of the world. If we're doing doxology speaking of things like that, and I don't care how you do it, you can pirate Paul's words, you can steal the doxologies out of the ends of his letters, and you can put those words in your mouths. You can plagiarize Paul, he won't mind a bit. You can rob him blind. Or if you're more creative and more ambitious, you can write out your own doxologies. It doesn't matter how you do it. But if we're doing doxology the way Paul is holding it out to us here, then nothing can divide us. Nothing. And any division that does exist between us can be healed and put away like a bad dream. And if we don't believe that, then exactly what do we believe about the gospel? But doing doxology the way Paul gives it to us here, it makes dividers want to run. Or it makes them want to shut up. Or it makes them want to be changed. And we'll settle for any of the three. The church would be happy with any of them. And doing doxology the way Paul gives it to us here, it presses Satan under the bottoms of our shoes. Satan gets to see the bottoms of our feet. When you give glory to God, when you're amazed and you marvel at and you're astonished at the love of God who puts the hostility and conflict and division of sin away in the body of his own son, that's torture to the enemy. And it's the highest pleasure of the church. Skeptics, are you running away from a God who is chasing after you? My skeptical friends would admit, they would say, yeah, we are running away from this God. If he is a God who only judges, then my advice to you is don't stop running. You have to keep running. You cannot Stop. But if this God loves to forgive, you can stop running now. Because of the cross where Jesus was judged for sinners, you can stop running. And if you meet Jesus at the cross and you experience his deep, lasting forgiveness, then all this strangeness that we've been talking about this morning, this doxology... It'll pour out of you. One of my favorite stories from church history comes from American church history, which is not the category of church history where we think all the good stuff happened. 
We like the stories from England and Scotland and Germany better, but I like the stories of the church in America. This little church in our story this morning doesn't exist anymore because the town it was in doesn't exist anymore. The town died, so everything in it died as well as people moved away. This little church was never more than 150 members, but in its lifespan, it sent out that many pastors and missionaries and teachers. That's prolific. As many members as they ever had on the books, they sent out that many kingdom builders. But at one point in the life of this church, a split was threatened. There was a group of people, roughly half the church, who wanted to change the worship of the church. They, they wanted essentially what today would be seeker services. Church that, that isn't meant to feel like church. Church for the unchurched. They called themselves the new side. The other half of the congregation disagreed. They said, no, we, we have too much gospel in the old ways. The biblical practices of the church that have been handed down to us from generation to generation. And, and certainly we have to speak to our culture and to our neighbors and to our time in these old ways. But the ways themselves, the substance of them, it doesn't change. And we can't just throw them away. We can't give all this up. There's too much gospel in these ways for us and our neighbors. And they called themselves the old side. On the Sunday morning that the new side was going to leave the church for good, the old siders blocked the door. They stood in the way. If you can imagine it, the whole church was packed into the center aisle, from the back of the church to the doors. And the pastor and the people who were standing in the way said, please don't go. We know we have differences, but we love you and Jesus loves us together. And we don't know how to resolve this, but we know that Jesus can reconcile us if he chooses and if we wait on him. So the new side didn't leave. They stayed and it was hard. It was tense at the beginning. But do you know what that church did? They did this they did doxology. They put all their weight and all their energy and all their effort and all their hope into giving glory to God, not to themselves, not to their side of the issue. The church split never happened. Eventually, the new side came to agree with the old side, but that wasn't what they were aiming at. They, they weren't trying to reach agreement. That's not where they started. What they said together was, let's be caught up in amazement at the way our God has so fully loved us in the life and the work of Jesus Christ the Savior. And it's the perfect ending to the story. And it's the perfect ending to Paul's letter. Because it's the perfect ending to the gospel. The gospel always ends this way. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but now has been disclosed to you. Just as the prophets foretold having been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. 
to bring graciously about the obedience of faith to the only wise and generous God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen. Lord Jesus, we are just this petty and just this small-hearted. We would divide any church for our own interests and agendas and warped desires. But you to us are far more gracious than all of that. Through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, sweep us up into the enjoyment of the glory of God and make us people overwhelmed at the way you have loved us in the Savior. Ruin by grace our propensity for division and remake us a people of doxology. And for this, we will give you thanks. And in this, division will be driven away, and we will have the peace of Christ. And we ask it all in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit.